Hi, and welcome to another edition of Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm your host, JJ Walsh in Hiroshima, Japan. And this series is about interviews with people from across Japan who are doing really interesting things in terms of people, planet, and profit, finding ways to find a balance. And in today's episode, I have the chance to talk with Professor Philip Sugai, who's at Doshisha University in Kyoto, and he has done extensive research on ways that businesses can find more value by doing the right thing and adding sustainability to not only their business mindset, but how they communicate to the customer. In this episode, we're talking about his book, Building Value Through Marketing, as well as his white paper that he did after extensive research with his students about how to assess sustainability in business. I hope you enjoy the episode and feel free to write your comment or question under this podcast or on any of my social media. I look forward to hearing your insights. Thank you so much for joining, Philip. Thank you for having me, Joy. Let's talk a little bit about where you are. You're based in Kyoto at Doshisha University. And what kind of courses are you teaching and what kind of students are you teaching? So I'm teaching in the Global MBA program at Doshisha University. And、um, we've got a 100% English、uh, MBA program、uh, right in the heart of Kyoto. And we've got students from all around the world. Basically, more than 30 countries are represented here on campus when our campus is fully functioning、uh, in a non COVID era.、Um, but、uh, yeah, so our program, we've got basically three focus areas,、uh, the biggest of which is sustainable,、uh, sustainability and green business.、Uh, we're also, because we're in Kyoto, we're also focused on culture and creativity and then business in Asia. So, I,、uh, I teach courses across、uh, all of those areas, but my, my main focus is obviously marketing. So, I teach the required marketing course for、uh, all of the students here. And then,、uh, just like it says here、uh, on the slide, so I'm teaching sustainable and responsible marketing. So,、uh, again, we'll hopefully get into this in, in a lot of detail, but beyond the typical thinking about marketing and how we can really integrate the idea of value and, and responsible approaches to business,、um, I teach、uh, e marketing, which focuses on sort of you know, how we deal with people in this type of interactive era. Uh, marketing research, and then obviously, we've got a, a course for all students that's、uh, taught by all faculty around critical and analytical thinking. So, that's, that's basically my focus here. And、uh, yeah, I've been here now for this is my ninth year, and、uh, it's, it's just been fantastic. Wow, great. I was so excited to、uh, connect with you, and not only、uh, talking about your book. Uh, reading your book and getting so many great insights about marketing and how you're connecting so many great sustainability strategies with marketing as a part of creating more ethical marketing or what do you call ethical capitalism?、Hmm. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Well, I think, you know, marketing started out、uh, a long time ago as something that, you know, Company would make a product,、uh, would want to sell more of those products, so they would call in the marketers. And so, marketing turned into, or was, you know, basically the practice was just helping to sell more things. And so,、um, that the original definition of what marketing actually is was around that idea of just helping to sell stuff. So, but, you know, as, you know,、um, the economy. Globally, or different countries grew.、Um, and you've got the slide here from Milton Friedman. So basically, this idea that you know, the social responsibility of a business is really just to make profit. And then once the profit is made, then you know, the, 
obviously governments in the forms of taxes or, you know, other folks with a clear mandate for social issues uh, should take the charge. <clears throat> and so marketing's job then in that framework is to make profit and to help make the highest level of profit, irrespective of the impacts that it makes on other stakeholders. And yeah. so very it created kind of a, a lot of damage in how marketing and business concept was done. Uh, but I was surprised when you brought this up on the great talk um, that you did uh, with the Singapore group was at IFOR maybe. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, you're talking about all the negative knock-on effects, but I was really surprised to see in the quote, he's talking about the ethical culture, yeah. the eth ethical custom. custom yeah. And then you said, so your job as a professor and a teacher with your students was try to work out what was that ethical custom, right? Yeah, so basically, you know, we've, you know, from that history now gotten to the point where the impacts are just impossible for us to ignore. And so even here with, I mean, one of the things that surprised me was actually reading carefully through Milton Friedman's 1970s article, because I'd, I'd heard about it, but I'd never read it carefully. And when you read it, um, as, as much as Milton Friedman is maligned, his points are really clear in that, um, we don't have a way to measure those impacts, those negative impacts. And until we get a rigor around those and a, a way to really, you know, measure and manage them, then they shouldn't be the focus of, of business or the way that we're talking. And so that ethical custom, what we consider to be our responsibility as, as business people, until that changes, um, and we, we, you know, until we change that and change what we define as really the ethics of how business operates, um, we can't really make the changes that are necessary. And so that's that's what we focused on now is really looking beyond um, profit to understand really what what makes a good company. How do we define a company as good? And it goes beyond stakeholder capitalism. So stakeholder capitalism is wonderful. It's a great way to look at things. Um, but uh, it misses in terms of having something that's actually accountable or measurable. And that idea is shared amongst a lot of different people. And so, um, and if I can see the, the Sampo Yoshi uh, thing here on the slide as well. So <clears throat> we, we think that, or, you know, in, in the West, maybe the idea that this idea of ethical capitalism or stakeholder capitalism is a new thing. Um, this idea of Sampo Yoshi or the, the three goods of a business date back to the 17th century and even earlier in Japan. And so the, the point that I'm trying to make with this is um, this isn't new. Uh, this is something that's been around for a long time. And, you know, we can sort of leverage and learn from all the experiences that have happened in Japan and then expand that even further to apply uh, in markets globally. To also reference more of the Japanese part of the business responsibility, uh, you also talk about Eiichi, Eiichi Shibuzawa from 1975 right. and his contribution to the, the conversation about Sampo Yoshi and the responsibility of a good business. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, uh, Shibusawa Eichi is, he's considered the father of uh, cap of Japanese capitalism. Uh, and he's actually the subject of a big uh, taiga drama right now uh, on NHK in Japan. Um, but his argument was that business is there to serve society, right? That this is um, the, the greatest good that a business can do because business is embedded in society, right? It's not a separate thing. It, it's structured somewhere in the world. It hires people, you know, those people go to work and add value in the way, in the things that they do. The, the thinking that he had was that purpose of business is to really um, improve society, right? So to make things better for all of us. And that's a really, you know, today we look at this and we're like, wow, he was talking about that a long time ago. Um, but uh, 
you know, that, that concept has been instilled in, I think, many, many businesses here in Japan, but also, you know, you can see it in businesses globally. This isn't unique to Japan. Um, but there hasn't been sort of this champion of um, social business uh, to counteract the champion of profit-based business that Milton Friedman really has been and, and continues to be. So I think uh, Shibusa Aichi is a, a nice counterpoint to that, as are you know, a number of other people, too. Yeah. And we have a lot of great examples in Japan of big businesses, very successful, very old businesses who have that long-term vision and the long-term view of taking care of their staff, taking care of their customers, taking care of society, as well as making a profit. So it does still exist, but of course, there are a lot of big businesses in Japan who aren't applying those principles um, quite as much like many companies around the world. And uh, you talked about this in terms of looking at the company's role in society and how do we see the responsibility of a company and how a company can improve its brand by communicating in a more ethical and responsible way, right? Right. Yeah, no, so I, I um, have great respect for uh, the things that Ivan Chinard from Patagonia actually talks about. And so his argument um, has been, well, we really can't even say the word sustainability related to business because, you know, sustainability means that we're um, not really having any negative impacts. We're, we're at least um, restoring or returning as much as we're taking. And so in light of that, until we get to that point, the right way to talk about this is responsible business. And so um, my question has been, okay, how can we actually define um, what a responsible business actually is? And then how can we apply that, you know, in a way that we can measure and, and see, you know, the impacts that they're having uh, and help companies actually create a, a bigger and better future. So the slides that we have here are just, um, from some previous talks that I've given that shows, you know, right now, SDG number one is about the elimination um, of poverty. And this is actually from a great website called Gapminder. There's a great book called, um, uh, um, uh, no, I've just forgotten the name of the book, uh, uh, Factfulness, thank you. So um, by uh, Hans Rosling. And their team has actually gotten some incredible data to show the reality of the situation that all of us are facing as, as citizens of the world today. And so back, you know, 200 years ago, 90% of the world's population was, you know, living below $2 a day was, was what would be considered below the poverty line. And as of 2019, the, the last date that we have data for, that number is now just 10%. So, you know, um, economic progress, business progress. We've done some incredible things in terms of getting people out of abject poverty and up at least into what they call level two. Um, and they've broken it out into four, the world, uh, world's income uh, into four levels. Level one, which is less than $2 a day, all the way up to level four, which is more than $32 a day. So, you know, what, the, what their data shows is we've done an excellent job in getting people up and out of that less than $2 a day category and to SDG number one, you know, we need to do the hard work of getting people out of level one into level two. So that number 0% soon, and then out of level two up to level three, and then ultimately get everybody up to, you know, a place that they're, they are making, you know, uh, uh, beyond a living wage. They're, they're making wages that, you know, are comfortable for them and their families. Um, but in order to get us up from, you know, 90% of people below the poverty line to where we are today, um, you know, on one hand, that evolution is spectacular and wonderful, but it's come with some really terrible costs. And we can't, I mean, we just experienced COP26. We can't continue on this trajectory if our grandchildren or great-grandchildren have any hope in living in a world similar to what we're experiencing today. So that's, that's basically, um, as a marketing professor, um, teaching in the old way of like how you help companies just sell more things, um, 
it's kind of not the most comfortable position to be in because in reality we can't continue to do that. And so luckily we have a new definition of what marketing is, um, the goal of what uh, marketing should be, uh, and how we can deal with now um, responsibly, ethically, um, bringing products and solutions and services to people in a way that's not going to make things worse, but hopefully make them better. Yeah, so important. And I think like this data was from 2019. It'll be very interesting to see what 2020 looks like. And we know a lot of people during coronavirus who couldn't go out and work safely. They, you know, their income really went down a lot more homelessness, a lot more food insecurity. So the data from 2020 is going to be really shocking, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, you also were talking about the business roundtable as the a, a good sign, a good sign when uh, businesses started moving towards the broader uh, spectrum of thinking about stakeholders as a bigger part of the community, not just people profiting from your company. Can you talk about that a little bit? And yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the, we, you asked me about the Sampoyoshi and the sort of historical Japanese perspective. Um, and so the thing that's really exciting to see is that the world not only has taken that, you know, three pillars of good. So the Sampoyoshi is good for the buyer, good for the seller and good for society. So now, uh, uh, it was, this was August, 2019. Um, the business roundtable came out with their um, revised purpose of a company. And uh, you remember that the old purpose of a company was based on Milton Friedman and profits, you know, at all costs, uh, basically. And so now they're saying, or well, profits, uh, optimizing shareholder value, right? That's been the mantra for, you know, since I was in business school and, and even before that. But so now the Business Roundtable, which is a group of, you know, the world's largest companies, US-based organization, comes out with a new statement a couple of years ago now saying that, no, 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 the, the purpose of a company isn't just focusing on shareholder value, it's focusing on value creation across seven key stakeholders. And those seven stakeholders are obviously the company, its customers, employees, partners, society, nature, as well as shareholders. Um, and then the Davos Manifesto almost, you know, just a couple months later comes out. So this is uh, Klaus Schwab and, and the team uh, in Davos uh, published the Davos Manifesto 2020, which basically outlines the exact same stakeholder groups. So in order for a company to live up to its purpose, it needs to um, legitimately uh, create value for those seven stakeholders. Yeah, so obviously a move in the right direction. Um, but what you've you've been talking about in more detail with your book um, and with you writing the white paper about the 80 goals this year is kind of taking a more detailed look about how this is a great idea to move in the right direction, but how do we assess that? Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it starts probably there's, th- these are in the right order. So from top to bottom. So um, when I came here to Doshisha, uh, basically one of the things that I realized was that there's really no good marketing textbook um, to teach students, you know, from this idea of value creation. And so, you know, I've read a lot of different textbooks and they're all very good, but they don't really nail the points that I was hoping that um, I'd be able to go through with students, which is, you know, how do we actually focus marketing on value creation across these stakeholder groups? And so building value through marketing is basically my guide for students and for any uh, executives or companies I work with to help them create a value-focused marketing strategy, not just profit only. Profits are the result. They're not the goal. So that's um, building value through marketing. And so as I started teaching from this here at Doshisha, we've got some really incredible students here. And so some of the, you know, Uh, very good questions that come out are, well, okay, professor, that's nice, but how do we actually measure this? 
and so my answer to them at the time was, well, that's a really good question. And value is a very uh, bespoke uh uh, thing. So every company will have its own unique way of measuring value. Um, and so that's, you know, we just have to go with what is relative or material or important to that individual company. And so that argument lasts only so long until the students ask, you know, why is that? And shouldn't there be a better way? Um, and so, you know, that started me on this very slippery path of looking through all uh, possible academic literature um, on these ideas of value, right? And so over three years, I must have um, had more than 12 uh, MBA students working with me to really sift through, you know, Dosha has all these wonderful databases through our library system. And so to sift through all of these academic journals, articles, trying to understand how the academic world measured value. And sort of the shock that we got was, you know, everybody has these great ideas about value, but if we try to put them together into a cohesive model, so like the one on that slide um, there, you know, that nice circle, total value and the different uh, stakeholders, um, everyone is measuring value in a different way. And they're using different variables, they're using different uh, measurements, they're using all different things. And so when you try to you know, add them up, what you just get is a big, uh, I guess the, the right way to describe it is a big hot mess, right? It doesn't really work. Um, and so that was very frustrating. And my students were very frustrated. Um, but uh, we, we decided it was, you know, a nice valiant attempt. And so uh, we have a Bloomberg terminal uh, here on campus. And so I decided, okay, well, if we can't see it from the academic side, let me at least look at Bloomberg because they have all these sustainability measures. Maybe we can find an answer to that through those types of platforms. Um, and so I spent a long time at the Bloomberg terminal. I actually was very fortunate to speak with some of the data scientists at Bloomberg. Um, I've talked to people at other companies, uh, competitors to Bloomberg for uh, sustainability data and sustainability ratings. Um, but the very unfortunate truth is that when you start to dig in and try to understand the exact math, like how did they actually measure and make that score? Um, and how do we connect, you know, A to B? Uh, that moves into the world of proprietary information. And even under a non-disclosure agreement, I couldn't get access to that kind of data. And now that just may be me and my access into Bloomberg or other organizations uh, out there. Um, uh, but we just couldn't break through that barrier of, of proprietary uh, data. So then the last step was, okay, well, we learned that this information exists through sustainability reporting. And then uh, I was able to pull together a team of uh, research assistants. So uh, this was as COVID-19 uh, has started to hit, uh, Doshisha actually made uh, research funding available to faculty. And so I was able to hire two outstanding <laughs> research assistants, so Paul and Sign from Thailand. Uh, and they helped me basically pour through all of the different sustainability reporting frameworks out there to try to see if we could organize them into some way of measuring value around that circle that you're showing. And the exciting thing was we actually could, like it made sense. Uh, and so that is how we got to these 80 goals uh, is we spent months um, collecting hundreds in, in the case of uh, BIA, the, the uh, B-Lab business impact assessment stuff, it's like thousands of questions around sustainability and all those metrics and then organizing them into some type of model that a business could understand. And so that's sort of the connection between my book and the white paper is the book was sort of, okay, here's how we make strategy. Um, and then that's value focused. And then if you ask me, okay, well, how do you measure that value? The white paper is an attempt to answer that question so that people can feel comfortable using the strategy development tools that I'm, I'm uh, explaining in the book.
it's a huge, huge project. And it it's so complicated, right? Like you you talk about you have to talk about not only what the company is doing, but where their suppliers, you know, come from and what are the suppliers doing? It goes all through the chain, the supply chain of value as well. It's really complex, right? Once you start digging into it. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things that scares companies. And it's also something um, that serves to the advantage of um, consultants and people who want to come in and sort of um, uh, uh, relieve executives of sort of the, the terrors of going through the, com the complexities of this data. Um, yeah, what we found actually is that in many cases, the language is made to be complicated. The measurements are made to be complicated. It's, it's, um, it's, it's very complicated. But when you aggregate across the different frameworks, so we collected 15, we looked at 15 different frameworks uh, and we collected more than 350 impact measurement um, uh, measurements and uh, impact measurements. And we basically, across like GRI, <clears throat> across B-Lab, uh, Gene, uh, Iris, uh, SASB, <clears throat> excuse me, we basically put them into themes, right? So first we took the impact measurements <clears throat> and like you're showing on the screen, excuse me, um, we put them first into those different seven stakeholder groups. Then we derive themes, and when you start to look at the themes, they start to get much less complicated. So here, um, you've got uh, partners here. So uh, supply chain and uh, distributors uh, or things like that. Uh, so here, the, the last one on the list is fair uh, uh, employment, uh, uh, fair labor practices, right? So there's many, many, many different measurements around fair labor practices in the supply chain but they aggregate together into that basic theme. And so what they're saying is, hey, if you're really serious about being a responsible business, you really should look into the you know, labor practices in your supply chain, or here we've got environmental concerns. If you're serious, we need to be talking about water, right? You need to be talking about your waste and pollution. And so that was our first, I think our first major contribution is to try to simplify <clears throat> all the complexity that's out there and make it understandable for people. And you say simplify, but you do have 80 categories to go through. It's not nothing simple about it, right? Plus yeah, but, it's like you have this combination of compliance, like what is the government regulation that you have to do and what is extra, like really good for your brand, but it's not a regulation. It's not something they have to do. That's another complexity, right? Yeah, well, we're, we're kind of looking at it a little different um, in that we're, instead of thinking about this as like a regulatory requirement or a disclosure requirement, um, the, the question I have, and that gets back to your ethical capitalism, um, the, your, the slide that you had before, um, Ethics, really, if we're thinking about like ethics of a business or business ethics, the, the question is sort of what is really the picture of a good company? And so basically what these, it's 27 themes. And within those 27 themes, what we're saying is these are how we could define like the ideal, the perfect company, right? Like the, the, the most wonderful, perfect business that everybody's talking about is basically based on these 27 themes. Um, and so then within those themes, there's 80 specific ways that we're going to measure your performance in order to prove, like not, not just branding. And so one of, I, I taught brand management when I was teaching in, in uh, Niigata at IUJ, uh, International University of Japan there. And, um, one of the things that really troubles me is the idea of putting together branding with sustainability, right? Because um, if it's just a branding exercise, 
then all of these issues around stakeholder capitalism and my problem with stakeholder capitalism is it allows marketers to use whatever disclosures are made to sound like they're doing something sustainable or responsible. And so like, um, for example, carbon, right? So we're, we just finished COP26. Um, all these companies and uh, governments are coming out with announcements around carbon emissions and uh, net zero or carbon neutrality. But in our, um, you showed it with the blue uh, nature category. In addition to branding around carbon, you can't forget about water, right? So there's issues about water that you have to deal with. There's issues about energy. There's issues around the products and services that you make. Are they actually um, you know, responsibly sourced and things like that? There's issues around biodiversity and the buildings that you're operating out of too and their impacts. And so if you allow the marketing department or the advertising agency to come out and just talk about carbon and ignore those other points around water and biodiversity, we're actually causing more trouble than you know benefit that we're creating. So we need some sort of objective measurement to say ethically, like ideally, this is the picture of a beautiful business, of a, of a good business. And then based on that, please just tell us how you're doing. Help us measure how you're doing. Um, and so within that, obviously, uh, we've got some issues of like, um, uh, if you're found to have human rights abuses in your supply chain, obviously, we shouldn't be talking about customer satisfaction at the same level, right? We need to fix some of those critical issues that are really horrendous. Um, but uh, that once you deal with those, doesn't let you off the hook for everything else. And so um, you've got this greenwashing on, on the screen here. And I've actually created a new word that I hope makes it into people's um, minds because uh, it, and I call it value washing. And the idea here is that um, greenwashing is really only related to environmental issues. So like you say, you're doing something good for the environment when maybe at the same time you're doing a bunch of other bad things. But when you've got abuses, again, in your supply chain for human rights, or if your employees are not treated well or don't have retirement benefits uh, for after they uh, retire, um, if you're you know, choosing inappropriate partners, those types of things, those are, I, I can highlight as a marketer, I can highlight all the wonderful things that I'm doing and hide all those negatives. And until we have this sort of fair objective framework, um, that can show that that's not happening, we run the risk of value washing. And so what I'm trying or hoping that the work that I'm doing uh, and my team here is doing can, can contribute is that if we really just take a step back and look at it, what, what is the purpose of business, right? And I, I hear all this purpose-driven business conversation and, you know, it again, isn't linked to very clear outcomes. And so what I'm trying to do is link this to clear outcomes, clear measurements of good, and then just let companies report on them. And uh, I'm just going to keep going if it's okay. But if, if we have that, I'm sorry, I'm on a roll. Go ahead. No, go ahead. But uh, if we have that, then again, I, I don't want people who are listening to this to confuse what I'm saying with being uh, judgmental, personally judgmental about a business. If a business reports on transparently talks about, you know, its retirement benefits or um, how it treats animals or how its buildings perform, even if they're doing terribly and they report on that, um, my hope is obviously that those businesses will work to get better. But as long as they just report on their actions and are transparent about it, it's really up to the market to decide, you know, what to do with those disclosures, right? So if customers don't care that a company is actually, you know, polluting the water, they still want to buy that code or they still want to do something, then, you know, that's, that's obviously within their rights. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And uh, it's definitely in this new day and age with everybody on social media, I don't think companies can hide in the same ways that they may have been able to before 
everybody who's an active, sustainable seeking customer has been able to check it and to yeah. call them on it, right? Yeah, I'm. you know what? And I'm not sure if I can really um, agree with that. So, um, and Coca-Cola, you've got some slides from Coca-Cola here um, that I've used in the past. Um, th this is a great example because um, just recently, maybe a couple of weeks ago, uh, ago um, there was a nonprofit organization that actually looked at uh, plastic pollution uh, by you know manufacturers or companies around the world, and Coca-Cola came out with the highest grade of anybody. And so again, without a set of common metrics, so this is so this is slides from a presentation that I've given in the past. So on Coca-Cola's website, they're talking about their desire um, to you know uh, recycle. Uh, a bottle or a can for everyone that they make. So whatever one goes out, they want to take one back in and make all of their packaging 100% recyclable, right? That's going on. That's live on their website at the same time as the next slide that you have, I think, which, you know, and the, actually the most recent um, uh, Break Free from Plastic report came out, uh, I think, within the last few weeks. And again, Coca-Cola for the fourth year in a row has been found to be the world's largest plastic polluter. But at the same time, we've got that other announcement where they're, they are one of the companies that's being um, appreciated for their work with moving towards, you know, bio, biodegradable or um, plastic, uh, you know, plastic from other sources other than oil, um, doing really outstanding work to make their plastic production and recycling capabilities better. So then the question that we're all left with is who do we believe, right? Is Coca-Cola great? Is Coca-Cola terrible? Are they somewhere in between? And or, so, you know, I also follow like the ocean cleanup and a lot of ocean cleanup campaigns. I, I do a monthly cleanup myself in Hiroshima. Definitely we're finding Coca-Cola plastic a lot more than anything else, right. any other brand. And everybody's saying this, but for ocean cleanup, for example, Coca-Cola is now funding one of their machines, which is taking plastic out of the plastic garbage patch. Right. It's funding innovation to start cleaning up. So they're they're kind of doing both, right? Right. right. Like they so, are trying to own it at that's least. That's right. So and I so that's back to your original point. I mean, it's I think it's getting harder and harder to separate fact from fiction or like there's so many facts, <laughs> right? Um, so you know, the, the, it's hard to figure out which one or which ones we're going to listen to. And I think that's breeding divisiveness because, you know, people will embrace their facts and then just fight against other people's facts. And it goes both ways. And we don't have an agreed on picture of what a good company actually is and does. And uh, I think if we can everybody take a step back and sort of look at the issue through fresh eyes and say, okay, really related to plastics, what is, what is our measurement of a good company and what are the KPIs? How do we actually measure that? And once we do that, and so you've got uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs here, so we can actually get to a point of, of moving a business beyond just serving itself to really serving, you know, uh, everyone right which it's which again if we go back to the history of business in japan or business thinking in japan that's really the purpose of a business anyway right is to help us all socially improve yeah. and it is it's really complicated isn't it because it i was uh listening to a good conversation the other day about journalism and how now because of the way our media is and everything is free a lot of respected newspapers and journalists are having to do clickbait type social media posts to get people to pay for content. And so in that way, a lot of companies who have big advertising budgets are kind of able to make the news. And so if you as a researcher or a, an activist consumer are trying to do your best to make the most responsible choices, it's not as easy as it was before, right? So right. having a metric like you're trying to create with this 80 category, that gives us some guidance as consumers, as businesses 
who are trying to use sustainability and ethics as their part of their brand to get more loyal customers that helps them and it helps consumers, right? Right. And I, I think that's um, to your point before about, so 80 is still a lot. Um, so we actually, I think you showed this uh, slide before of our sort of report card. So what we've got is then from those 80 um, uh, goals, we've got a way to actually measure. Yeah. So this is it, the, the assessment model example. So we've got a way to measure a company across how they're performing against those 80 goals. Um, and so the question is, you know, number one, their scores related to do they have a written policy that's communicated around each of those 80 goals? And two, based on their achievement of that goal, they get a score from zero to 10, right? So in total, the company can get, you know, a maximum of 11 points right now. And we're, we may be add, adding a few levels to the policy uh, the quality too. But you can see across those 80 goals how the company scores for one of them. And then like this uh, assessment model shows, then we can um, uh, sort of simplify those into one of those 27 themes. So then we go from the 80 individual goals to the 27 themes, and then the 27 themes will go into uh, the seven stakeholder groups, and then the seven stakeholder groups will come out with one grade. So if you're interested just in seeing one number or one score, here, like you see, this company is getting nine points and they're overall a B. That's their, you know, overall score as a company. And then we can compare that company to another company in the industry. So if we've got Coca-Cola, then we compare Coca-Cola to Pepsi. And we can actually see how Coca-Cola does versus Pepsi. And if we've all, you know, got access to that assessment framework on our phone or wherever we access it, we can make a consumption choice. And you know, if we want to, if we're really interested and we want to click in, I wonder what they're doing about plastic, or I wonder what they're doing about water or animals, you can click in and see. And so then issues that are specifically important to you, you can actually start to make your decisions based on. And so the same thing, if you're going to uh, try to work for a company, you can see how they perform versus other competitors in that industry. Um, or if you're going to partner with a company or whatever, right? So, or if you're a local uh, government you, and you're, you know, negotiating a deal with a company that wants to move into your municipality or your area, you can also look at their performance related to, you know, society-based goals. So, again, it's it's coming up with a clear, transparent, simple enough uh, framework that going back to Milton Friedman has enough rigor to it that we can fight against this argument of just shareholder, you know, value and profits only, but shareholder value and profits because we were able to do all of these other things. And that's, that's what we're trying to achieve with this framework. That's fantastic. And moving forward and testing these out and trying them out uh, with your students in different businesses to really make sure that it does have some long-term <laughs> Yeah, assessment value and it really does stand up. Um, I would love to see how convenience stores in Japan compare. I would love to see how coffee shops in Japan and anywhere compare. I think there's a lot of consumers and consultants and businesses who are doing sustainable things who are very interested in this. Um, one of the things you said in your video on Doshisha University's YouTube is uh, advice to students who are getting into marketing is don't be scared of failure. And I think while you're doing this kind of assessment, you might say the same thing to businesses, right? It, don't be afraid if you're failing, that's a learning opportunity, right? Yeah, and for at least with this framework, so we're we're very lucky in that we've got uh, a bunch of companies that have already um, agreed to start working with us with this assessment. So we're we're seeing some really interesting things coming out with them. Um, but again, this um, there is there honestly isn't any failure here. Um, so in this case, with students and jobs and things like that, maybe there are instances of of failure. But here, at least with this assessment framework. Um, it's just trying to get a, a, a benchmark, a check to see how you're doing. And then as long as 
again, you're not trying to turn this into a branding exercise. So again, I, I teach marketing, I teach branding, I understand how you do those things. Um, but, you know, branding, you're trying to create some, you know, imagery, some feelings, some emotions or, or associations between your company and your customers, right? But here, we're just trying to see how you're doing across these impacts and then building a strategy forward for how you, you know, keep getting closer to that level of good or not, right? It's, it's up to you, but it, it's basically, I think the, the failure with respect to this is not to have the courage or, or, or interest in trying. That's, that's I think the greatest failure uh, with this project. I think um, definitely companies are competitive, right? So they would want, even though you say it's not really a branding or marketing strategy, they would want a higher score than their rival, right? So, but that might motivate them forward to make better choices or to make positive change, right? Right, and that's something, again, um, if you look out at some of these assessment frameworks that exist, they'll give companies scores, but you can't actually dig into the, you can't see how those scores were actually developed. And so if a company wants to improve or compete with, you know, colleagues in the industry, it has to rely on consultants outside third parties or whatever to try to figure out how we can increase our score, right? And again, we're being incredibly transparent and open. So everything that we're working on will share um, in terms of the evaluations and sort of what needs to be done to improve. Um, but then again, um, we're in this trap of thinking about the score as the end result and not the impacts or the value that we're actually trying to create. And so that's one thing that I'm personally nervous about about the system is by turning this into grades and numbers and scores that will get people focused on uh, just a scoring outcome uh, and not really thinking about, you know, how we make, you know, consistent value improvements across our, our stakeholders. Um, but anyway, it's, but if it's done correctly and if we can get companies in an industry actually competing with each other, um, that would be really exciting. Um, so yeah. how can we create more value in this space? Definitely. Uh, it looks like we might be frozen. I'm not sure what happened, um, but hopefully we'll come back soon. Let me just try to reset the layout here. No, are you, is it frozen on your side? It's frozen on my side too. Okay. Um, it was such a good point that you were making. It froze the, the internet. Um, one thing that I've noticed with, uh, for example, Google has just come out for Google Maps, um, where they have a special badge for hotels that have an Echo certification. And one of the things that is often a struggle, especially for small, medium-sized businesses, is to have enough funding or time or expertise to even get that certification in the first place. So um, is this something that you've thought about in terms of this, this type of assessment strategy, like how to make it accessible to everyone in order to be fair in some way? Yeah, so, and that's again, um, what our, our purpose is. So this is, we've just actually created a new research center here at Doshisha. So uh, as of this month, uh, I'm officially now the director of the Value Research Center here at Doshisha. And the purpose of this center, so um, Doshisha is a university. We're not, you know, this huge for-profit organization trying to extract, you know, lots and lots of consulting fees out of lots and lots of companies. And so the idea here is that we're trying to make the assessment framework uh, free and, and available to anyone. And so the white paper that you've accessed, um, I've made it available free for download for anyone. And so any company 
irrespective of size. So if they're a single solo entrepreneur all the way up to a huge multinational company, they can download the white paper and they can start to understand what they should be doing. And, you know, they can make their own strategy or approach to, you know, what it is they want to be doing related to this framework. But um, the goal is to make this all transparent, open, free, free, available to as many people as possible. Um, and then, you know, obviously we have to, um, there'll be things that we do need to charge for, like trying to help people get certified. So again, anybody can read the report for free, but they can't go out and say, okay, I'm a, a value assessment framework or valuing value um, certifier or whatever, or assessor. They kind of need to come and take some classes with us to, you know, make sure that they've actually learned the things that are critical to do this work correctly. Um, and companies may need to work with, you know, um, consultants or people who actually are coming in and helping them. Um, but again, the assessment itself needs to be free and available to everyone. And so that's sort of my commitment in all of this um, as a professor and now director of this research center is I want this not to be complicated for people, right? 80 sounds like a scary amount, but, you know, one by one, you can work through and figure out how these actually apply to your business. Um, and those that don't, you know, maybe there are things that you can think about making investments into you know, related to them. So there's this great impact investment uh, model that's out there. And, you know, even in areas that may not be specifically material or, or critical to your business operations, maybe you can make an investment in, you know, nonprofits or other organizations that are working on addressing those issues um, in order to really make a complete impact across those 80 goals. Yeah. And I, I love this point that you've made a couple of times about it being accessible to everybody from solopreneurs to small businesses to big businesses like this is really an assessment that should apply to anyone and any kind of business. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's so if we have a definition, a shared understanding of what a good business is, and it's to me, it's kind of surprising that nobody has ever really worked on making that definition um, beyond, you know, a company is good if it generates shareholder value, right? But um, again, once we have that definition of what a good company is, then it applies to any company anywhere, right? And so that's, that really is important. And then if we're hiding it or making, you know, um, like protecting it behind a wall of, you know, high paid consultants in order to, you know, be sustainable, then the world's in a lot of trouble, right? <laughs> I mean, most of the businesses in the world are small and medium enterprises. That's a fact. And, you know, they're the engine of economies. And so we need to be focusing on making these things accessible to them and, you know, communicated and, and made available to them in a way that they actually, you know, in the course of the 24 hour day that, you know, they're limited by, that they still can actually work with this stuff. In doing all this research in uh, writing this excellent book, which you use with your students, and all of your thesis is that you've helped your students create uh, what advice would you give businesses in Japan that want to create a better brand and using ethical, sustainable strategy? Do you have any advice you could leave us with? Yeah, and it's great that you have the how to value wash right there on the slide. So, yeah, basically it's, and I think this is where in many places Japanese companies are uh, advanced um, or at an advantage because, um, you know, I hear a lot of uh, companies, consultants uh, in the advertising space complain about uh, Japanese companies' lack of branding, right, or poor branding. And on the flip side of that, um, it means that, you know, companies in Japan are not overly communicating uh, the benefits that they're giving. Um, 
and they're not value washing to the extent that maybe other companies are. I don't have any, you know, solid proof or analytics behind that, but that's that's just my gut feeling. So I think that basically, um, again, to brand comes from uh, promises delivered, right? So a company makes promises, delivers on those promises, and that's where the brand is born. And brand is born in every experience that a customer has or a relationship that that or interaction that a customer has with that business. So if the business itself is focused on creating value, right? Really, honestly, like not just creating a valuable brand, but be creating value, right? So making, helping its employees be happier and, and you know, enjoying their work more and feeling more engaged, making its customers, you know, feeling wowed that they're, you know, able and, and uh, have access to these products and services. Um, partners feeling like they've got a trusted partner to work with. Um, the society actually, you know, feeling, you know, good that they've got that company as a corporate citizen there. Um, the company doing things across all of these stakeholder groups. Um, the brand will magically and naturally evolve because all of those experiences will start to turn positive, right? And so if you focus on the value creation, the brand will actually develop. If you focus on trying to brand, right, um, it's very likely that the value won't develop. And so, again, we need to start at the first step, which is the mindset. What is the purpose of this business? What is the real value that it's here to create? From that, I can almost guarantee that the brand is going to come to life and that the value is going to start to be experienced. So I, I just, it, it troubles me uh, that, you know, branding has turned into something around like just telling these stories to try to trick people into believing something that, you know, maybe they wouldn't believe if they saw the reality. And I, I think the younger generation today is, is picking up on the fact um, that that type of, you know, what did Greta call it? Blah, 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 right? That, that kind of language um, doesn't work anymore or won't work for that much longer. And so I guess that's a very long answer to the question of, you know, if you really want to make a powerful, successful brand, create value and create value across these stakeholder groups that you're showing right now. And your brand is just going to be, you know, spectacular. I agree, hundred percent. It's really important to to have the mindset, to have the know-how, but also to walk the walk and show that you're putting these ideas into action. Um, how depressing is it when you see someone with the SDG pin on their lapel and they have no idea how it can actually be put into action in their business or in Japan in general, right? So, right, having Having can, a strategy. Uh, yeah, you can buy one of those pins on Amazon for less than $10, right? So that's that's all it takes to have the SDG branding, when in reality, committing to the SDGs takes a lot more than wearing a pin. And um, I'm hoping, so you'll notice I, I don't have a, an SDGs pin on. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, um, you know, that a commitment to the SDGs moves beyond branding and to really just helping the world achieve those, right? Th those are really important. Um, and rather than branding ourselves about it, we just need to accomplish them. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And another um, thing which I often come across in Japan, which I'm sure you do as well, is the whole idea of SDG goals or sustainability goals being aimed outside of Japan for other countries that we can help. And I always say, well, what about Japan? Let's work on some things here too, right? right. <laughs> yeah. So I think again, if you know, if anybody has has watched through this entire talk, <laughs> the sort of my my summary or sort of thinking around all of this is, it, we're in this place because we forgot to agree on a set of measurements, right? That, that's it, and we've made this so complex that we all feel like the measurement is impossible. 
and the message that I hope the work that I'm doing can give is, okay, this may not be the best, like I'm sure there's a better model that we can come up with, but as a first step, at least we can have these 80 goals and they are related to the SDGs. The SDGs are embedded in the stuff that we're talking about. And so instead of, you know, figuring out how to put the right colored box on your business or, or your trucks or whatever, um, or focusing outside of the country versus inside, we just need a clear way to measure this stuff. And then once that's agreed on, you know, then go ahead, call in the advertisers and the marketers and, you know, the, the brand builders and all of those people. But um, as the first step is really getting that mindset for, you know, this is what we want to do. And this is the measurement framework we're going to use to make sure that what we're saying is actually what we're doing. Yeah, excellent. Um, that is almost our time. I, I brought up this uh, page where you thank people that have helped you with your research and give a way for people to get in touch with you. Uh, is the best way through LinkedIn to get in touch and Doshisha? Yeah, so um, mail or uh, LinkedIn is fine. Actually, LinkedIn, I'm trying to be uh, active. So yeah, please connect with me on LinkedIn. With email, I'm you know the the amount of email that I'm getting recently has been incredible. So um, I may not be able to respond quickly, but uh, definitely through LinkedIn is is what I would recommend for people to reach out to me. Yeah, I was able to connect with you on LinkedIn. So it it is a great tool in Japan. Yes. Uh, for me, for this series, I've had so many great guests. Yeah. Uh, connected on LinkedIn, so it's it's definitely a great connection area. And I would recommend everybody go out and buy this book, uh, Building Value Through Marketing. And we are very excited to start seeing the 80 goals and the white paper online as well. Is that going to be available on Doshisha University website? Uh, well, it's available right now on the Building Value Through Marketing site. So just go to the blog and I've got uh, blog posts uh, on there with links for people to download the, the full white paper for free. Um, and if anybody can't find it, or we've got a full like 150 plus page uh, discussion paper uh, that if people want to read, you know, beyond the white paper to see all the, the analytics and how this whole thing came to life, um, you can email me and I'd be happy to send that to you as well. That's wonderful. And I will add the links below. Great. Thank you so much, Philip. Thank you so much for joining and for sharing all your wonderful insights and for all the fantastic research and writing that you're doing to help right. push sustainability in the right path. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Joy. And I, I hope, I hope, you know, this things just keep getting better and that we actually are creating value here ourselves too. We, we are the value research center now. So if, if we're not creating value and other people aren't measuring it for us, uh, we're, we're in trouble. So thanks. And it's great uh, to, that you gave me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's fantastic. And it's so great to connect and, and hear about the work that you're doing. And like I mentioned before we started, all the great work you're doing is helping the sustainable consulting that I'm doing and helps everybody around Japan. But I think even further, even outside of Japan, we are all on this same path forward, trying to find a better way because we are all borderless in this climate crisis problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's part of my challenge now and the challenge of, you know, the folks that I'm very fortunate to be working with here um, through the research center is to really reach out to, you know, the the leaders and thinking and, and trying to work through this all. And, we, you know, we're talking to people in accounting and finance and management, marketing, brain science, climate science, right? All of these areas, um, public policy to try to really um focus this in on something that can really help right so and that's that's accessible and able to help and it definitely is a global discussion and it's uh, one of the great things about publishing both the book and the white paper is that it's given me introductions and access 
um, and just able to meet people um, who are doing just some incredible things. Um, so it's it's really exciting to see the the passion behind all of this. And I think as the crises start to get worse and worse, just the number of people that we have working with us to fix this um, hopefully will keep growing and enable us to, to actually fix it and not just talk about fixing it. So that's that's the goal. And we're, we're always looking for collaborators, always looking for people who can help, uh, companies interested in helping us test and implement this model. Um, so again, now that I've got the research center, you know, um, if there's anyone interested in joining us, just please give me a shout and I'd, I'd love the chance to work with you all. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And definitely everyone, I will put the links below and please reach out and uh, read more about what Philip's doing. But also if you are keen to collaborate, definitely get in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Joy. Thanks everyone. Have a great day. Take care.